Red Wall, the abbot is woken up an hour early by Bag and Run banging, bringing him a big breakfast in bed for his jubilee. He's cheerful, he cheerfully offers to share it with the tw Otter Twins, and they make short work of it. They also give him a bark paper card, to which I love this because, one, it's such a cute, sweet gesture from the kids, but two, it makes you think of the doodles we have from that one Viking child where we found we basically mm -hmm. found his homework which he wrote on bark and i love it like if you if you guys want to have like a really good time look up viking bark drawings or viking child drawings hold on i have to link you something that we got tagged in on uh -oh. twitter no 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 it's, it's good. good it's good <laughs> we got tagged in it Let's see I posted it in the recording text. Oh, chain. that's really neat. We got tagged in this drawing of Constance. Oh, I love that. By uh, Suleiman Doodle. Oh. I love it. it. Let's give you a heart. It got a heart for me. There we go. <laughs> Back up. Uh. The morning rolls on, and animals from Mosslar begin slowly trickling in. Dandan and Saxus are set to do a slow patrol of the walls and help anyone who seems like they need it. Friar Alder, knowing the abbot likes savory over sweet, makes him a Bernard bread, a massive loaf of wheat and oat bread. God, I want to make bread. I so want it in my mouth. I want to make. I want to bake today, but I have bread I need to eat. Meh. Um, and warm bread is one of life's true joys. Yes. Also, I love cockles and how ev the very first words out of his mouth are just some like Batman and Robin-esque <laughs> bullshit. Simmer in seasons. Look at the size of it. Come on, Friar. <laughs> With the aid of cockles, a small hedgehog, they get it onto a kitchen trolley. It is baked to perfection. There's Cockles' full name is Cockleburg. Uh -huh. <laughs> Just to have Cockleberry. to say that his name is not just Cockles, yeah. it's Cockleburg. But if you put him by a fire, are you warming your cockles? Stop it. There's a huge, there's a huge variety of veggies and other goodies baked into the bread. He asks if the if no, they're not baked into the bread. He made a dip. Okay. Let's see. There's leeks, sage, rosemary, bay, turnip, beetroot, onions, mushrooms of six varieties, young cabbage, fennel, cucumber, and corn, all floating in a mild pepper and cream gravy. What do you think of that, youngin? Frizzle and fry pans, there's no doubt about it. You're a fantastic fryer, a colossal cook, a stupendous stewer. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just, I love cockles so much. He asks if the other preparations are going well. And they are. He also makes sure to double check what drinks will be going with what food, because the drinks matter as much as anything else. You have to have to make sure they are matched properly. Says you've got to have the right uh, drinks with the right mm -hmm. food, uh, like right food, right drink, success. Wrong food, wrong drink, disaster. Always remember that, my lad. Storm. Oh, hang on. Rolling into late right. afternoon, an impromptu sports day starts on the grounds. Slow down, jerk. Uh, Dandon and Saxus continue their patrol around to be given such... Uh, patrol. Proud to be given such an important role. They finally take a little break. They watch the games until Dandon spots an odd pair coming down the road. A hare and a mouse. 
He has Saxus go fetch Mother Mellis to speak to them. Storm very much likes her first view of the Abbey. Mellis and Tarquin are old friends and greet each other with much joy. Dandon and Storm have a bit of a stare down, him curious about her ragged state, her not bothered by it one jot. I I I put squints at this interaction because I could I had the tingling sense of compet crawl up my spine. I don't know because he's like he's eyeing her kind of like I get the feeling like it's a side eye like he's not sure about her. Well, it's it yeah, but it's one of those like things that they put in like fantasy stories of the like wild like girl and the very prim and proper oh, boy. Oh, okay. Hey, yeah. Some compens cute. And I, I kind of like the wild girl who like drags the prince out like, "Hey, we're going on adventure." He's like, "Okay." Yeah, no, I also I also like it, but I'm also just kind of like, "What stereotypes are you going to be playing into <laughs> yeah. here, Brian?" The 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 tingling dread of compens. <laughs> <laughs> crawling up my spine. I'm joking about this, by the way, y'all. I know that some people who listen to us don't realize I'm sometimes joking about this. This is me fucking mm-hmm. joking. Mariel is not written the same way as some of the other characters have not been. Not at all. She is... She could destroy Dandin, and Dandin would probably say thank you. <laughs> Melis asks who's lording over Salamandastron. He tells her it's Rondlade, rumored to be the great-great-grandson of Sunstripe the Mace. All right, so here we already have great-great-grandsons, so it's been at least two generations for badgers. Of badgers. Badgers live a long fucking Yeah, time. so I'm thinking it's just that mice live- Looks at Constance, who was old at the start of Redwall. <laughs> but also, spoilers for uh, when we eventually do get to Sunstripe's story, we know he lives long enough to have at least one kid. Um, she's happy to hear it and asks who Storm is. Storm introduces herself with confidence. Melis is charmed, but still asks the boys to give her a tour, a bath, and some proper clothes. The Dibbons are shocked by the state of Storm, and Saxtus tries to get her to go bathe and get dressed. She firmly says no, she's fine as is. Thanks. When Saxus tries to press her, Dandon can see the danger of that and tells Saxus to leave her be. And I like that Dandon is just like, look, you can't make her do what she doesn't want to do. Leave it off. Uh, but also, it's like finally realizing She's how crunchy. dirty she must be. It's making my skin crawl because she's crunchy. She's covered in salt and sand and probably wood and twigs and leaves. And it's just like, oh, girl, please go get a bath. She's so crunchy. And the salt from being in salt water. Oh. Like, yeah. Crunchy. Crunchy for her every movement is just the sound of dirt. And I'm one of those people who likes being clean. So, like, the thought of this is just, again, makes my skin absolutely crawl. Um, When when she sees some of the young ones playing, she asks what they're doing. She's confused by sports and playing until a ball rolls over to them. When told the game is to throw it as high as you can, she throws it up and sends it flying with Gullwhacker. The others scatter, and Tree Rose is hit by the falling ball. She's hit in the back. Rufy, Roof, Brush, blah, blah, Roof Brush comes over to check on the furious Tree Rose, who demands, whoa, sorry, blah, who demands to know blah. who hit her. Storm, not having seen Tree Rose get hit, 
happily steps forward to say she hit the ball high and that it's called playing. Would Tree Rose like to play? In a fit of temper, Tree Rose calls Storm many rude things and says she will teach her a lesson. She lashes out and scratches Storm's face, only to be soundly thwacked between the ears by Goldwacker. And if I'm remembering correctly... Consequences for your actions! But Brian's... Also, why did she... Like, here's the thing. I want to know, like... They're, the Dibbons are all taught from a very, very young age. Like, from basically when they're born, the people who live at Redwall don't commit violence towards other people. What the fuck, Tree Rose? Well, we're also establishing that Tree Rose is quite the brat. Um, she is a brat. Because he, he almost always, like, Brian seems to like to have at least one unpleasant kid or teenage character in the books who's, like, the spoiled one or the bratty one or the one who's a little bit silly and so far, it's been the voles, but this time around, we are getting squirrels who are more jerks than voles. Like, he'll rotate... The last book, it was the yeah. mice. Because <laughs> Maddie was a fucking brat at yeah, the beginning. Yeah, there was also Cynthia Bankvole, who was described as quite silly until she matured towards the end of the book. Because um, yeah. of Tawama. Um, Tawama. Set firmly on her rump, she begins to cry. She tries to get Roof, Roof to brush that. His name is going to keep tripping. Are you good? Are you I'm good? Not. That name keeps tripping me up. Roof brush. She tries to get Roof brush to defend her. But he's on Storm's side and subtly amused to see Tree Rose humbled. Mother Mellis comes along to soothe the situation. She does stop Tree Rose, warning her the next time she insults a guest of Redwall, it'll be Mellis putting her in the dust. She sends her off to wash in cold water, then turns to Storm, and then turns on Storm and the boys. When they explain she had no intent to bathe or wash, Melis advances on her. Storm threatens violence, but is outwitted by Melis. Like, I love Melis so much. She's such a It's such a good bit, because she just, like, looks behind Storm, like, oh, hello, Father Abbott. And, like, when Storm goes to look, she just pins storm with like by grabbing her in both of her <laughs> arms like just pinning uh-huh. her and it's like gotcha <laughs> it? yeah let me go pause off you great lump of an abbey dog fight fair like a warrior you big strappy trickster trickster let me go yeah like she's angry um angry pin between her paws storm is carried towards the abbey kicking and threatening the whole way not ready to miss a chance at jestery, Tarquin joins in. Dandan and Tarquin become fast friends, and soon many young creatures enjoy dancing to the music the two play with each other. A fierce battle ensues, with Melus, Sister Sage, and Sister Serena against the punching and kicking Storm. Water and suds go everywhere, and Storm refuses to go down cleanly. I am going to launch you into... The moon. <laughs> anyway, where the fuck did they get Lufa plants? Like, now that you pointed that out, I'm just like, like, is there any implication that there's any kind of volcanic? Like, maybe it's a volcanic Lufa? Because, like, I know some Lufas are volcanic rock. That's pumice stone. True. That's not mm. Lufa. Lufa is a, is a type of squash. Well. Where are Lufas native to... They could also maybe have traders who come from the ocean because some sea sponges are used as loofahs, I think. 
think. Saying it's native to Old World tropics does not help me. They get it from trading partners, sea otters. Uh, Lufa is a genus of tropical and subtropical vines in the cucumber family. <laughs> Uh, da 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 the uh, da da. Where the fuck is it from? <laughs> Outside, the abbot and Simeon marvel at the sounds of the fight. Inside, moving on. It's Egyptian. Ah, interesting. I mean, there's a few other species from other places, but it seems like Egypt and India. It's from India, then, because Britain yeah. does love pillaging India. Um, let's see. Yeah, it looks like it's it's Indian and Asian. So, like, where did they get the loofah plant but from? The same place they got the nutmeg from. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm not going to let the nutmeg go. <laughs> um, anyway, you can also eat loofah. Yeah. But you have to harvest it before it completely dries out. When it completely dries out, then it becomes a bath sponge. Moving on, the abbot talks about how Tarquin is their first resident heir, a gift from Salamandistron to connect the two together. The recommendation letter is less than glowing, but it is honest, but laying out the hair's good and bad points. Simeon is for it, and he thinks that Romblade has something in mind, perhaps a premonition of danger. Either way, the hair will be welcomed. So, like, here we're also getting the, the, the implication. Sarkin does not get along well no. with others. <laughs> like, that is specifically... Tarkin does not get along well with the other hairs. He's a fucking weirdo. But he's honest. And he is good in a mm -hmm. pinch. And it's just like... <laughs> it, I love the honesty of it. It's like the, the does not get it's like reading a fucking child's report card does not get along <laughs> well with others storm is severely displeased to be shoved into a dress and shoved out a door to play with the other young ones which it's like how how, how old are she? these characters supposed to be like again are they late tweet late teens are they early teens? Matameo being eight seasons yeah, old. Yeah, like, at first when they're introduced, like, she seems like an older teenager, but now she's, like, out playing with other kids. Not to mention, like, Dandon and Tree Rose and all that. They, they're in, like, this weird nebulous, like, are they kids? Are they teenagers? What are they? The answer yes. is yes. Time is weird. Um, goal Time is weird, and, and the, if you're not an adult, you're yep. a dip. Also, here's another detail I love. Gullwhacker has been washed, too, and is hanging out to dry. She'll get it back when the festivities are over. I love that they washed it! Like, they didn't throw it away, but they did burn her old clothes. I mean, clothes. fair. Because um, she was like, why can't I wear my old, my, my old, like, my old burlap frock? Why can't I wear that? Uh, because it's yeah, nasty. It's nasty. You're nasty. You dingus. You're, you're fucking nasty. So, uh, yeah. Dandin. Dandin, however, is quite <laughs> smitten by Storm's cleaned-up appearance. He invites her to sit between him and Saxtus for the feast. She doesn't know what a feast is. Dandin explains, and she's more than happy to join him in a race with Dury Quill towards the feast. She's just like, oh, it's food. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll um, go get food. Yeah, yeah, no, food. <laughs> food. We go to Salamandastron now. 
Romblade is sitting in his throne, vermin fate the sword resting in his paw. He listens to the Long Patrol's report, praising them for their choice to send Storm onto Redwall. He is disappointed that there's no news of his bell. Certain the sea rats are involved, he asks about a ship sighting from the northwest. A hare named Long Eyes says it looked like the Dark Queen. What do you see with your special eyes? Um, he, oh. <laughs> he could tell it wasn't... They're taking, they're taking the belt. They're taking the belt to sell an Andestron. He could... <laughs> The hobbits to Isengard. The hobbits to Isengard. Isengard. He could tell. We're old. He could tell it wasn't Saltower at the helm, though. He hazards it must be Greypatch. That worries Romblade. Last he knew, Greypatch was Gabool's right-hand rat. Dark Queen is his best ship, and if Greypatch is out sailing in Gabool's best ship, the wild evil rat could be back out on the seas again. He knows trouble is so round. So in, in some ways, it's a good thing that uh, uh, Gabul is holed up in that uh -huh. fortress, just slowly driving himself in a frenzy mm -hmm. by just being stuck in one place, sending everybody else yeah. out. He knows trouble is wound into his life, though, thanks to the writings on the wall of Salamandastron. So no point in worrying about it. What will come will come. And speaking of Gabul... And actually, Dark... No, not no, Gabool. No, not speaking uh, of Gabool. Speaking of Grey Patch. Under the cover of a night mist, the Dark Queen sets anchor and sets out a longboat to look for supplies. Grey Patch has a rat named Dead Glim lead them, since he has the nose for these things. In the dunes, he realizes there's not much there. They're attacked by the toads, and after a brave challenge fails, he calls for a hasty retreat. He Dead basically, Glim they get attacked by a few of them, and he's like... Why don't you come out and face us? And then, like, a billion fucking toads show up. And he's like, oh, God, nope, nope, I'm just nope. thinking of the scene. In, Never mind. I'm just thinking of the scene in Star Wars where, like, all the Ewoks just, like, ah, they show up and the stormtroopers are like, oh, shit, what? <laughs> um, Why don't you pick on somebody your own size? The thing fucking gets even bigger. Yeah. Oh, God. Grey Patch sends them further east to try and again further down shore. And I like... I like Grey Patch. I actually like him. Like, he's an enjoyable vermin. Like, he's not killing everyone. He's trying to be a fairly diplomatic leader, which pirate ships actually were very diplomatic places. You know, like, they had to be. They were out on the sea all the time. If they didn't like each other, they would end up dead very easily. They would have yeah. killed each other. So it's like, you know what? We've got to do this or we're mm -hmm. all going to die. So... And it also seems like he took, like, the smarter vermin mm -hmm. with him, or, like, at least the ones that he could convince to see the writing on the wall about yeah. Kabul, which means that they're also, like, smart schemers, and that may bite right, him in exactly. the ass. It's, 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 uh, it's um, six of one, half a dozen of another. Um, yeah. And now, speaking of Kabul, he is having a hard time sleeping. He paces around the stolen bell, bragging of those he's killed, including Joseph. The bell tolls out a long gong, startling the life out of Gabool. He can't see anyone in the room and tries to get the bell to sound again upon command. But no matter if it is struck or hit, it makes no sound for him. He boasts the bell will ring for him when he's done with it as he leaves the room. 
As soon as he closes the door, it lets out one more loud knell, breaking his nerves and sending him scurrying to his bed. Sleep brings him no relief. Only nightmares spawned from the figures and blazoned upon the bell. To which, like, you did point out that, oh, sorry, but that he's really, like, Brian is starting uh, Gabul's descent into madness very early in this book. Like, he just launches him right into it. Like, we get the impression at the beginning he's already starting to be unhinged. And now he just leaps right like, over the edge. Like, there's what? definitely, there's definitely like some implication that to become this rat who holds the mm-hmm. fort, uh, holds Fort Bladegirt, you have to be kind of like unhinged. Yeah, you have to be wild. Because you have to be, you have to be wild. You have to be willing to do the things that the other like rats might not mm-hmm. do. And so, like, he's already in a place where it's like yeah I'm just gonna fuck shit up and also my my second hand stole my best ship and has betrayed me what the fuck and now he can't mm-hmm. sleep although so you know we he's just, just started with that yeah just, yeah so you know and the bell is like making noises at him and it won't and now it won't ring when he hits it where before it would so yep. like it's refusing to make sound now um, and I mean, like, you were like starting the descent to madness early, and I was like, "That yeah. or Martin." And then in the next scene, I was like, "Ah, it's wait, not Martin. No. It's Badgers <laughs> because it's weird Badger magic." Because Ron Blade is dreaming as well. His dreams are of his bell. He dreams of Gabool appearing before him, mocking and cruel. Reacting out of reflex, he grabs the sword that never leaves his side, even in sleep, and lashes out. He's awoken by Clary asking if he's okay. He's managed to cleave a shield clean in two. When he says it was just a dream, Clary asks, a dream of the past? No, Ron Blaine is certain it is a dream of the future. So Badgers can straight up just have prophetic dreams. Um, Which we, I guess we already knew because of like the ancient Badgers of Salamandistron who carved every Badger's destiny into the walls of the fucking mountain and i'm like how much mountain is like how much of the mountain is covered in those because we only really see them once and that's up at the very top and that room like it did not seem like the walls were covered in scrawl i don't know i'm questioning this it doesn't make any fucking Mm. sense But to jump to a more cheerful topic, at the evening feast, a toast is said to the abbot. Tarquin is predictably pigging out. Others are dozing off, overfed of, overfull of good, wholesome food. Storm is having a grand time, a bit tipsy on the giggly cordial, which this kid is straight up buzzed, at least. Yeah, yeah, like fermented fruit will do that too. And she's a mouse. There's probably not a lot of alcohol tolerance there. Um... Dandon tries to show off by throwing and eating red currants, and when she tries to match his challenge, accidentally bounces it off of Formal's head and into the ear of the sulkily pouting tree rose. She yelps she's gone deaf, only to be rescued by the Formal flicking the red currant out of her ear and pouring some hot root suit down soup down her throat. She doesn't complain for the rest of the evening. Uh, sir, <laughs> sir. Sir, don't do that. That's a child. And you just poured hot, hot root soup down her throat. Probably 
literally scalding her throat. <laughs> and then, you know, hot root soup is hot. And so she has to spend the rest of the evening drinking water. She's probably having a very bad time. This is not how you punish mm-hmm. children. This is not how you do this. Excuse me, sir. Toasts are made to Sir. <laughs> are you done? Are you sir! done? No. Toasts are made suggest. Yes. I did make a... <laughs> Toast... I did make... This was, like, the first comment I made to Kit, like, in our yeah. private chat. Like, sir? Formal? Yeah. What the fuck? Toasts are made suggestions... Toasts are made suggestions for after-feast activities proposed, and singing wins out. Tarquin... Basically, Roof Brush tries to get everybody to start dancing, and everybody is like, uh, no, we are too dude. Full. They, we've got that Thanksgiving levels of gone to sleep now. Um, Tarquin leaps up to provide a song. Page 94. Uh, God, why, why is it when I say that I suddenly feel like I'm in Catholic Mass? <laughs> Turn your hymn books to page 94. Page 360. Turn to page 394. <laughs> uh, donate money to a, a trans organization, yep. please. Uh, and do not give your money to the And read queen. another book. We are just unfortunately trapped in the hell of we've been making Harry Potter memes for most of our lives and stopping making them is mm-hmm. very difficult at this point. We're also trying. Alan Rickman is an, was an amazing actor who had very good line delivery. He did. Uh, okay. So, Oh, it's hard and dry when the sun is high and dust is in your throat. When the rain pours down, you're fit to drown and soaks right through your coat. But the hairs of the long patrol, my lads, stout hearts, they walk with me. Over hill and plain and back again, by the shores of the wide blue sea. Through mud and mire to a warm campfire, I'll trek with you, old friend. O'er lee and dale in a roaring gale, right to our journey's end. Yes, the hairs of the long patrol, my lads, love friendship more than gold. We'll share good days and tread long ways, good comrades brave and bold. William goes next with a mole ballad, and Danden comes... Which we, yeah, don't, we don't get! get. And Dan... I'm mad about it. Danden comes after that. He sings a ballad he composed for the abbot himself. <laughs> and he's accompanied by Tarkin on the Haralina. Long may you rule, Father Abbot. Long may you reign over all. The woodlands of Mossflower and the Abbey of Redwall. When I was a young mouse, I learnt at the knee of the Father of Redwall. The lessons of you and the lessons for me from the Father of us all. In those good dibbin days, I learnt many kind ways to be honest, strong, and true. And wherever I go, I'll always remember that I learned them, sir, from you. Long may you rule, Father Abbot, over all of these creatures and me. And may we all say, in our own simple way, have a happy jubilee. It's cute. But and then they all sing it again. But a mole named Drubber breaks down completely from emotion. He's quickly comforted by his friends. After, after a few more songs, Saxtus stands and recites the same dark poem he'd recited earlier that day. Silence follows his recital until Storm lets out a strangled sob. We just cliffhanger there. Cut to it's the next chapter. It's a very good chapter ender. Like, Brian is nailing it with the chapter enders in this book. Like, the the, the level of, of writing, jumping up, like, his comfort in this world and getting into the stride of his writing is noticeable in this book. That or he got a really good editor to help him nail things down. Or both. Um, and to start the next chapter, we once again hop back to Terra Mort. 
The four ships return to Terramort. Gabul knows he must win the four captains over. He'd slain the other two, and their positions are threatened. But if he can win them, he'll have them and their crew totally under his control. He watches them all marching up, commenting to himself on their low place in life, how they're all killers. And they are, and they are, all are armed to the teeth. Um, it, it goes through a list of, like, the weapons that they have, and one of them is just a claymore. And I'm over here like, what fucking pirate uses a claymore? That is a big fuck off heavy weapon. Here we go. But every sea rat was armed to the teeth. Cutlasses, scimitars, straight swords, sabers, claymores, daggers, dirks, bodkins, spears, and pikes bristled everywhere throughout the barbaric mob. Claymores are big, massive broadswords. They're like close to being bastard They're swords, heavy. aren't they? Well, I mean, time to Google claymores. Because I remember, like, a bastard <laughs> sword is a big, big sword, um, and I'm pretty sure claymores—they're a two-handed sword. Yeah, yeah. They are a two-handed sword. All right. So a claymore is from the Scottish uh, Gaelic for great sword. I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I don't know how. Um, is either the Scottish variant of the late medieval two-handed sword or the Scottish variant of the basket-hilted huh. sword. The former is characterized as having a cross-hilt of uh, forward-sloping uh, quillens with quatrefoil termination. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand any of those words. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Things are tense. Seven captains await to see oh what the bull God. will do. Everyone waits. He's... It is a broadsword. Okay. He starts by giving away his sword. Then he extols how sad it is. How sad two of his captains would betray him. He's been so kind. And they repaid him with treachery. He ban... He bans. He bangs the bell with a drinking cup. Twenty slaves stagger into the room, weighed down by chests of plunder. They pour it all out at Gabul's feet. He gives the seven captains first go at the loot. They grab all they can, all they can, then retreat. Gabul gives the rest out to the assembled horde. While the horde fights over the shinies, Gabul moves among them, sowing distrust. Little whispered compliments here, an implication of someone else's misdeeds there. By the time all the goodies are taken and the rats have fallen upon the food, no one trusts their neighbor. Only Gabul is trusted. And then he plays his ultimate card. The first to hunt down the Dark Queen gets all her plunder, an amount triple of what he's given them that day, as long as they bring her back with Grey Patch's head nailed to her bowsprit. Uh, we, we must mention that the fact that there is triple the amount of loot on the it's Dark Queen is a lie, probably, because we don't know how much loot is there, but it's definitely mm -hmm. not that much. The scramble to get to their ships is chaotic. The they crowd the door and get stuck, fighting and clawing to get out. Before the rat who'd been given his sword can leave, Gabul asks him to wave the sword about. Unimpressed, he takes the sword back and shows the rat how it's done. He nicks off the edge of the rat's ear and then rests the blade at his throat. Would he like to see another trick? He chuckles as the rat scurries to leave the hall, sliding his reclaimed sword into his belt. I... Did not, like, this is one of those pages where I, we've got, like... No commentary. Uh, four notes on this, and it's just us being like, man, this is fucking yeah. good writing. It's, it's, it... 
That, it's like that's it that's just it it's just this is good fucking it, writing it, yeah it all flows very well like brian is getting the point across very well it's it's proof of how well it is that we haven't been able to like slow down to take notes um swinging <laughs> back to Redwall. at Redwall, storm is in the infirmary surrounded by worried red ballers she'd passed clean out and saxtus is beside himself with guilt for the effect his palm has had upon the fierce mouse simeon agrees She's a tough mouse who's gone through worse than many a mouse could survive. Simeon is making some kind of herbal remedy and has a hunch that they'll find Storm's true name if whatever he is planning works. And he's almost played up as much of a mystic as like a fox would be in this situation. And yeah, yeah and I feel like it's that mysticism of like disabled yeah. people. Simeon is what I wish the foxes could could be the slight mysticism but still using it for the better of those around them because a lot of healing back then was kind of tied to supernat superstition and beliefs because they didn't know exactly what worked so if something worked repeat it you know and i've said this before in other books when we've talked about the foxes but again it's also the yeah. bias of brian coming out of like since it's Simeon, a mouse who's doing this, it's good. If it was a fox, it would be played up as like, oh, they're trying to be spooky and mystic to... It's a racist caricature. Mm -hmm. And this is an ableist caricature. You want a good example of a blind character? Look at Toph, who uses earthbending as an aid. Um, Fuck yes. Let's see. Oh my god, I love Toph. I would die for <laughs> Toph, and she would, you know, not yeah. stop me, but... She doesn't she's, need it. And she's still disabled, too. Like, there's, she can't read. She can't see people's expressions. She can't, you know, like, there's still stuff she can't see. And anytime somebody is, like, you know, just saying, at, like, yeah. can't you see this? Yeah. No. I'm blind! Yeah. Um, and everybody's like, oh, right. Fuck. Also thinking, thinking of my favorite <laughs> scene from Rogue One where they, they put a bag over that one fellow's head. He's like, are you kidding me? I'm blind! <laughs> But he uses the force, so he gets around okay. Again, as an aid. Um, Sage calls in a handful of the most important folks and sends the rest off to bed. It's nearly two hours till dawn. Guests can sleep in the beds laid out for them below. Storm is tended to by Sage as Simeon pours a tiny bit of the mixture down her throat. She seems to like the taste and settling into a deeper sleep. Simeon takes a seat next to her and begins whispering in her ear. Let me scroll down a little bit. There's this whole bit. Oh, like yeah. This next whole bit is just so. This is the page where we had one note, and yet again, it is me being like, fuck damn, this is so well it's... written. This is another page in our document with no notes it's on it. It's heartrending, too. He, he switches the writing style very nicely here so that we know it's her talking in her sleep. So It's real good. Okay, read the. He tells her she is among friends, and her friends want to know her story. What happened to her? Will she tell them? With a sigh, she begins talking in her sleep. Brother Hubert is quick to write down her tale. She starts by telling... We also get little asides from mm -hmm. Brother Hubert as this is going on, where he's describing what's happening in the mm -hmm. room, as well as being like, I wish that she would slow down. I am not used to writing this fast. <laughs> she starts by telling of the ship Periwinkle, crewed by shrews. They're skittish to be on the open sea, but Captain Ash says it's the only way to get the belt to Salamandistron. 
Mariel and her father are delighted by the great ocean, admiring the new sights. He is proud of the bell he made. Surely it is grand enough for a badger lord. She compliments her father, calling him the best bell maker in the world. No, he says. The best thing he made was her name, Mariel, as pretty as the ringing of a bell. They have to leave the safety of shore due to reefs, but the captain seems confident as usual. Something goes wrong, however. One morning, a black ship with red sails is seen to be pursuing them. Sea rats. Her father has her hide, but she doesn't want to hide. She wants to fight. Three rats enter the room she's hiding in, and one finds her by accident. She kills him. Saltara subdues her and takes her above decks, where she sees her father and the captain tied to the bell. Much of the crew is slain or near death. I do want to make a quick comment. The way that it was written when Saltar and like when the rats found her and they talk about her, I did have a brief moment where I was like, oh, please don't sexually assault this this little pretty yeah. mouse maid. Because they call her a pretty mouse maid. And I'm just like, uh... yeah. but Brian does no. not go that route. He does not usually go that yeah, route. He almost ever. never even mentions anything sensual. Um... Yeah, like, it was just that kind of moment where, like, in other books, that's the thing that I would have expected mm -hmm. to happen. But in Redwall books, that's not an atrocity right. that happens. She becomes so upset that Simeon must give her more of the potion to get her to calm down and continue speaking. She tells of her time in Terramort, seeing her father beaten and starved, how she was beaten and starved as well. She hates Gabul. He threatens to kill her father if she tries to flee. So she will find a different way to be free. Um, also, a small side note here. Gabul calls her... Skiv. Skiv. Yeah. Um, then, let's see. Here she once more needs to be fed a bit of potion to fall back asleep. The next bit of the story relays how she'd, been, she'd ended up fighting Gabul. He'd been goading another captain into a fight, and when he'd gone to lunch for said captain, Mariel had tripped him by accident. He'd gone after her once the captain was taken care of, and she'd fought back. She'd brained Gabul, but before she could finish him, she'd been piled on by rats and immobilized. She paused one final time before relaying the last bit of her story. How she'd been tied by Gabul and thrown into the sea, her terror and determination to survive. Mother Mellis calls a halt to things then, no longer able to see the stand seeing the torture Mariel was going through. She sweeps her up, saying she and Mariel will sleep alone under the orchard. Really? I heard that on your side. Um, the, the, the alarm or the fucking like, motorcycle? <laughs> Simeon agrees they may have gotten carried away listening to her tale. At least they know, how, they know now who Mariel is. Most of them go off to find their beds, except for Tarquin, who proposes returning to the food and how happy he'd be to tell a tale of Hom Rosie. Danton turns him down pretty firmly, going to find his bed. He says, that sounds like a tale for a cold winter night. I'm going to bed. <laughs> Morosely, Tarquin... Yeah. yeah, this... This whole section was written so well. It is a huge leap in intensity and its ability to capture the reader that feels so different from the first mm -hmm. three books because like of just how it starts there's no easing into it there's no like prelude it's we start and yep. it goes and it fucking goes it does indeed 
morosely, Tarquin tries to compose another ballad for Han Rosemary out in the orchard. His minstreling is interrupted by a hard green apple and a sharp scold from Mellis to quit caterwauling. Because she has gone out into the orchard with uh, uh, Mariel to sleep. Oh, Rosie, why did you leave me? You're enough to give a bally chuff the pip, laughing in my face, ha 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 ha, and leaving me in tears as off you trip. Youch! A hard green apple bounced off Tarquin's head as Mother Melissa's voice called out from the trees. I'll leave you in tears if you don't quit your caterwauling and let us get some rest. I'll wrap that Harolina around your head. See if I don't. <laughs> I love Melis. She's so good. Back with the Dark Queen, we find her sailing northwest, or northeast, hugging the shore as she goes. Which, small note for people, that was actually something that most ships did back in the day before they had more reliable forms of uh, reckoning. Because if you couldn't see the coast, a lot of them had no idea where they were. Compasses were still fairly hard to get, hard to come by. They didn't really... Expensive. expensive. They didn't really have the navigation that we had. Like, I don't even know if they had the... What are those devices called? Like, the ones they would use to sight the stars with. I don't think they even had those. But... I yeah. don't know yeah. what they're called. I, I'm ashamed to my naval ancestors. Graypatch knows it's dangerous, but he knows these waters better than others. He sets some other orders and goes below decks to check and make charts of his own. I really like that the charts are listing things that we've seen in previous books. Like it's it's the um, like the mountains mm-hmm. and the um, mm-hmm. the cliffs, and I I just I very much yeah. enjoy it. I think it's neat. He's looking for a river that leads inland into the forest. And I thought at first that this was going to be a setup so Mariel could get a hold of the Dark Queen and head into, like, out to sea. Now, part of me is wondering, like, later we learn that this is going to be the B-plot with Redwall, where they're going to, you know, spoilers, but they are going to accost Redwall and try and take it over, as they do. Um, you know, as happens. Yeah. Um, oh, also, I forgot to say... I really like all the naval jargon that they're using. <laughs> There's so much naval jargon. It makes me happy. I like it. It's fun. Let's see. Come dawn, things look grim on the ship. Little food, no fresh water. If they can spot land, if they can't spot land in time, just in time, in fact, land is spotted. Along with the trees, gray patch, along with the trees gray patch had so hoped to find, he has his whole crew watch the river. Watch for the river. Come noon, they spot it. You're, do you, do, really, do we need to take, like, a short break so you can get, like... I don't know. Something I've to got, drink I've got, or a snack? Because you're, like, faltering man. really bad right here. I think... Do we want to just take a short uh, break really quick? Should we pause the recording if we do? No. No, I'm all right. Recording. It's just, um, I'll be all right. It's just sometimes, sometimes I wrote things in a way that, like, when I am writing them... It makes sense. Like, I can read things very quickly, but the head-to-mouth doesn't always connect very well. So, I've got water right next to me, and I have been sipping periodically. Okay. Okay. Let me start that over. Just in time, in fact, land is spotted, along with the trees Grey Patch had so hoped to find. He has his whole crew watch for the river. Come noon, they spot it. Grey Patch is worried. It's ebb tide, so he can't go into the river like he wanted. Gabul's ships will no doubt be searching at top speed, but he's got no choice. He has to drop the anchor 
or risks standing the Dark Queen. It gives him a chance to tell the crew his plan. They're all to go ashore and pull her upriver. Once in the trees, they can hide and restock supplies. One rat objects, and Graypatch points out it's this or sit out there like, well, sitting ducks. So, begrudgingly, they agree to the plan. They get her two lengths into the river before she runs aground. The crew drop the ropes to get a drink of fresh water. Graypatch threatens, begins to threaten them. His threats are cut off as he spots the green fang, Gartel's ship bearing down on them in full sail. And back to Redwall. With her memory returned, Mariel begins gathering supplies to set out to rescue her father. She threatens to whack anyone who gets in her way. Danden calls her out, saying they're peaceful and it's a bad mark to hurt any of them. Again, she threatens. She doesn't want to hurt them, but she'll do what she must. Melis also calls her out. She's acting like the wild storm, not the good Mariel. Simeon tells her the, they only want to help. Now, I want to mm. say this. Uh, storm is mm -hmm. Mariel, and Mariel is Storm. Like, Melis should not separate them like that, because she doesn't right. know Mariel. She can't just be, like, not like the good Mariel. Like, she doesn't know Mariel, so she can't make mm -hmm. that assumption. But she does. They are the same person. Yeah. Okay. When she... When she tries to reject the offer, Melis says rubbish. They've survived this long by helping together, helping each other. And what she will do, <sighs> what will she do with the rope, stolen clothes, and stolen food? Thoroughly shamed, she gives in. Tarquin breaks the tense situation by jovially putting his arm over her shoulders, suggesting they go to the gatehouse and hold a council of war. Abbot Hubert gives Mariel a kerchief, cheerfully saying, Oh, carefully staying in front of her so she has time to wipe tears from her eyes, praising Tarquin for his good idea. And on one note, this is a good way to write a jester a bard. He is using his tomfoolery, his goofiness, for what it's meant for. He is helping break up a tense situation and keep people calm and thinking. Or giving them, like, making himself the focus of their ire, not Mariel, so she has a chance to recover. And yeah. I love that Hubert gives her a kerchief and allows her the privacy of being able to cry a little bit. Like, the books, the characters in this book are so kind to one another. Love Abbott mm -hmm. Hubert. Put another Abbott on the list mm -hmm. for good Abbots. The... Abbott Mordelphus, still yeah. better, but... <laughs> The gatehouse proves too small and dusty, so they have a picnic lunch on its steps as they begin the war council. When asked by Mother Melis what she plans to do, Mariel replies she plans to go to Terramort. Does she know where it is? No, but she will find it. Simeon chuckles, saying, says the blind squirrel reaching for a cloud. It makes Mariel bristle, thinking she's being called stupid. The food arrives, and while they eat, the abbot explains Simeon wasn't insulting her only reminding her she needs help. Firstly, they need to find clues to where Terramort is. Brother Hubert says he could help with that. He's been eavesdropping from his gatehouse and happily joins them to enjoy lunch too. Brother- He just like, just plops himself down like, oh, this lunch is also for me. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> ha. Hello, I have information and now I'm gonna start eating your food before I say mm -hmm. a word. Brother Hubert starts to explain that yes, he's heard of Terramort from a hare named Fieldrone, 
only to be interrupted by an excited Tarquin. His father had known Fieldrone, a compulsive wanderer and poem maker. Where did Fieldrone get the prophecy Badger. from? <laughs> a did badger he? did it. A badger did, did it. He? Did he? <laughs> Sniffing in offense, Hubert continues. He'd sheltered Fieldrone for half a season in winter. The hare had left some of his scrolls with them, seeing as they were getting too cumbersome for his travels. Dandon interrupts this time. Does Hubert know where the scrolls are? Unfortunately, he doesn't have any real proper system of sorting. They descend on his gatehouse, and Simeon promises they'll have his gatehouse cleaned and dusted and properly sorted when they're done. Mid-afternoon. So really what happens is they're like, oh, well, let's go check the gatehouse, and they all start going, and Hubert is like, no, you don't know my system! And Simeon just calls him out like, you don't yeah. have a system! It's dust! Your system is yeah. dust! <laughs> Mid-afternoon finds them dusty, and many various forms of scrolls, books, and parchment scattered on the lawn. Saxtus hasn't spotted the scroll, and the Otter Twins are having a merry laugh at them from the wall top. Mariel goes to scold them, but their laughter is a bit infectious. When Simeon asks why they're laughing, the two point out that while they were moving everything out of the gatehouse, Hubert had used some old scrolls to prop the door open. Hubert, what the fuck? They laugh. They're laughing because suppose the scrolls are the ones they're looking for. Sure enough, they are, and they have a good chuckle at themselves. At least the gatehouse finally had a proper cleaning out. And here I make the note of, like, imagining Hubert walking around looking like Pigpen. But also, like, I'm imagining a Studio Ghibli-esque uh, cleaning sequence going on here. Oh, yeah, like Sophie from Howl's Moving Castle, just the dust flying <laughs> exactly. out the door. Your dogs better run before I cut your heads off. Um. <laughs> Calcifer, like, complaining. Howl, help. <laughs> Father, help. Um. <laughs> She's torturing me. Graytail gets the jo- oh, sorry. To jump back to- oh, that's the end of that chapter. Yeah, jump at the end of that chapter, jump back to Graytail. Graytail gets the jump- Gray, Gray no? Patch. Gray Patch? Gray Patch. Why did I write Graytail? Gray Patch gets the jump- oh, it's I because know. I wrote Gartail. Because Gartail. Gray Patch gets the jump on Gartail. His crew lines up in the shallows, able to hold the crew of, green, of the Green Fang in the deeper water that's harder to fight in. He sends two rats to get boat hooks and pikes. He won't go back to Terramort as a trophy. Gartail sees he's lost the advantage, but presses on due to greed. Or due to the greed for the booty. His greed is repaid when Greypatch manages to skewer him right between the eyes with a marlin spike. Without their captain, Gartail's crew is confused. Just mm. Just then the two he'd sent return with ranged weapons. Greytail sets up archers in the back, pikers in the front, and says they're to slay anyone who tries to come ashore or circle around behind them. The Green Fang starts to drift to sea, having not been properly anchored. The already demoralized group splits in half, one half swimming for the boat, the other vainly trying to fight the crew of the Dark Queen. Greypatch releases the last part of his plan, fire arrows. He sets the Green Fang ablaze and orders all her crew to be slain. None shall live to tell what happened to either ship. Big Fang and Kaibo, the pair who'd fetched the arrows and pikes, mutter mutinously. Wasn't it their victory, not Greytail? Shouldn't they have saved some of the crew to Gray, join- Grey Patch. Grey Patch. Shouldn't they have saved some of the crew to join their side? 
much. And then I started calling him Greyfang. The pair quietly agree that, come the chance, it might not be a bad idea to challenge Greypatch. Greypatch doesn't help his case by soundly smacking Kaibo with the flat of his sword, ordering all aboard the Dark Queen to await the evening tide. And it deleted your comment. You did, did because I responded here? to it. Because um, I responded with, I was wondering that too. It's suppose, I suppose it would mean more mouths to feed and more competition and or Brian's playing on the power corrupts trope he loves so much. Because you made a comment about how you thought it was weird that they didn't even try to recruit some of the other vermin, which I agree with you because I thought that's where this was going. Like the ones that he'd beat and he'd be like, okay, surrender and you can come with me, continue to fight and you die. But no, he just goes straight to kill them all, which really felt weird to me because it's not what Brian has done in the past to an extent. Like usually the vermin will try and get some more force on their side. Weird. I, yeah, it deleted your comment. Like, I remember seeing that comment. Google Docs, yeah. what the fuck? Anyway. And this is actually... At Terramort, Gabul is having a bad time. He can't sleep due to nightmares, and all his cook slaves have been sent off to help with the repair of the three ships left on the island. He... Like, sir, you made a mistake. <laughs> uh... You wanted to see, you wanted your bell to be shiny so badly when you could have had a cook slave that could also mm -hmm. shine a bell. Instead, you have the bell shiny slaves who can't fucking cook. And he picks one of the four slaves left to him, ordering him to cook him a meal. When the poor slave says he's slave, when the poor slave says he's no cook, Gabul says he's a cook now, and he's told to go roast a bird and bring wine. With all four slaves chased out, Gabul begins to succumb to slumber only to have his nightmares return. A badger lord with a broadsword. A mouse made with a knotted rope. Neither he can escape. He is woken by the knell of the bell, still alone in the room. And I'm sure this is Martin messing with him, or again, badger magic, but I, I, at this point, I was still assuming that Joseph was dead. And it was kind of like, it would be very amusing if this was Joseph's ghost. Like, you kill Joseph? You throw daughter into water? Jail! Jail for Gabool! No sleep for a thousand years! Jail for one thousand years! <laughs> At Redwall, Tarquin is rising everyone's ire with nonstop talk and praise of Han Rosie. It doesn't help that they've discovered the first part to the book's riddle quest, a map to Terramort hidden in poem and verse. Which is like, I keep flip-flopping on Tarquin. I like him. He's, he's enjoyable. I enjoy him. Like, I liked Basil in... Redwall. I did not like him in Madame when... And I like Tarquin a little more than I like Basil because when he is doing his job right, he's fun. But the minute he starts talking about Rosie, it's like, meh. Stop. stop. You need to stop. Heterosexual male.
Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast and want to help keep it going, please consider donating to our coffee, linked in the description below. Follow our Twitter and Tumblr at Abbey Archives and join our Discord. This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave, and some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout inspired audio drama.